Hello, lovelies. Welcome to the Fat Joy Podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. I'm Sophia, a fat person and professional coach who loves talking to other fat people about what it's like to live within oppressive systems that marginalize our bodies and how we still dare to have the audacity and courage to reach towards our collective liberation and embrace our joy. Please know this is an adult content podcast, so there will be swears. We will be talking about harms we've experienced, and we will be rebelling against diet culture, anti-fatness, ableism, racism, etc. If you'd like to support the Fat Joy podcast and get bonus content as a thank you, please check us out at patreon.com slash fatjoy. I am so glad you're here with us. Enjoy. Hello, lovelies. Welcome back to the Fat Joy Podcast. I'm Sophia, and with me today is Amanda Laird. Hi, Amanda. Hello. Hello. Um, so I've known Amanda. I've known of you, Amanda. I was saying this when we worked together, I guess like a month ago. I've known of you for years and years and years, and I feel like I've been very aware of the stuff you've done. We have similar circles, which is really interesting, of people that we know. And then I saw that you started a new business and you were offering these consulting services that you'll tell us about your new business on the podcast. And I read it and I was like, oh, that's exactly what I need. And it was so great because I got to actually have a full hour and a half session with you. And we talked about the podcast. You helped me figure out what the next step for the podcast is. And you did it according to like anti-capitalist, feminist, business, feminist business practices. And I was like, do you want to come on the podcast and talk about all this cool stuff? And you said, yes. So thank you. Um, and I'm so excited to share your wisdom with the group. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Amazing. Um, so let's start off by you telling us about who you are. I am the founder of Slow and Steady Studios, as you mentioned. I am a, a writer, a speaker, a mom, and you know, famous in some corners of the internet for my previous project, which was Heavy Flow, uh, the Heavy Flow podcast, and the book that I wrote that goes alongside it, which was called Heavy Flow, Breaking the Curse of Menstruation, that was um, published by Dunder and Press in 2019. Amazing. Oh, oh my God, I'm excited to dive into all of that with you. And you're sitting in your fancy new office, so you're also home reno. <laughs> yeah, yes. Construction project manager for the last year plus, 18 months. So yeah, pretty much done. That, so Oh, good. Is it, do you like doing that? Is that fun to do like the interior design stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like I really wanted to be an interior designer when I was a kid, actually, until my best friend's mom told me that I had to be really good at math to be a designer. And I never considered it as a career again. Oh. Yeah. Is that actually true? So, okay. So, so I, I asked my designers because, you know, you end up spending a lot of time with these. We, I worked with an incredible designer. Her name is Michelle Bennett um, here in Toronto. Shout out to Michelle. And we spent a lot of time together and I had one day mentioned this and I was like, you know, is that true? Like, are you guys like math whizzes? And 
they were like, well, I mean, like we take a lot of measurements and stuff, but like there's calculators, right? (laughs) (laughs) And I imagine like interior, like you see like interior design programs where you just plug stuff in and it yeah maps it all out for you (laughs) like I really don't think that is true but I never considered myself to be good at math or a math person and that was my like dream job when I was a kid and I just figured I'd better find something else to do so instead I made a period podcast (laughs) I love it I also think it's just so interesting. So I have a story like that. I was going to do a PhD and in English lit. And my professor was like, mm, I don't think that's for you. And I was like, okay. And totally like stepped away from. So it just, it's making me think about how, and I think this is so true. And I think it does all tie into how we feel about ourselves and our bodies is like a single comment from someone else can really shift our trajectories in kind of shocking ways. Like now when I think about it, I'm like, why didn't I talk to any other professor? I don't even think I asked her, why did she not think a PhD was for me? I think she was right. I will say, I don't think a PhD was for me because I hate research, but I love teaching. So that should not be a PhD should not be my approach because you basically just research the whole time. But like, I just, it just, I just was like, okay, you must know better than me. Someone else must know better than me about my own desire. Yeah, I was like 11, probably not even, maybe like nine. And so here's a grown up that like I trusted. It was my best friend's mom. I like practically lived in her house, right? And it was just like a throwaway comment. Like I bet you if I ever asked her today, like, (laughs) hey, remember that time that you told me? Like she would be like, what are you even talking about? Right, right. Yeah. So interesting, isn't it? I'm so curious for people listening, if you have had ever had a moment like that where you just, some comment from some person changed some aspect of your life and now you think back and you're like, oh, why is that? I think it's just interesting to interrogate that a little bit ourselves, right? Oh yeah, I can think of like a million other moments (laughs) like that too, right? (laughs) Right, yeah, yeah. Well, why don't you tell us about your relationship to the word fat, your journey with the word fat? My journey. Uh, I feel like I'm still on it. I don't, I was, as I was like preparing for our conversation, like what kept coming to my mind was me like saying, Sophia, like I'm not a liberated fat person. Yeah. (laughs) I love (laughs) it. Did you think I would hang up if, or I would stop the Zoom? If you said yes, <laughs> bye. It's like and the laptop just like shows, slowly closes. <laughs> and it was, you know, something that I've had like a very long, like a lifelong history with like being, I don't even want to like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know where to start this conversation. See how uncomfortable I am? See how uncomfortable I am. I feel like it's super relatable. It's and super relatable. I can't even find my footing because I want to say, like, I'm compelled to say things like growing up as a kid in a larger body, but like, that's not true. Like, that's not even that true. Like, yeah, probably you'd say I was like a chubby kid because I wasn't a string bean, 
And, but like for a good chunk of my adult life, like I oscillated between a size 14 and an 18. So I was just a normal average body, (laughs) you know? Um, But I'm compelled to say, oh, I was fat all my life, which just is not true. Yeah. What's the part that's compelling that? Like, I don't know. I don't know. As some kind of like, I guess, justification for being fat at 40. Oh, yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I'll say my, my story is very similar when I look back at photos of myself. And I, I had an episode that I did with my best friend where we both were convinced at the time that we were deeply fat, both of us. But we actually were probably like a size 12, 14. But oh, yeah. Right. And it's, so it's it's so interesting to me, like from my perspective now, again, this idea of like where I am now and looking backwards versus what I felt at the time, like I remember feeling I'm disgusting. I'm huge. I'm fat. I'm bigger than everybody. But I have a picture of me at 16 in this bathing suit and I'm just like, holy, that is a gorgeous, sexy body. It was athletic. It was not fat in any way, but it was. And I felt, I don't know, it's very confusing like reality versus what I felt and what I was taught to feel. There's so many layers here. Absolutely. And, you know, the time, the thing that sticks out in my mind, and, you know, this is an uncommon story, okay? But I look at pictures of myself when I was postpartum, like the year after my daughter was born, which was the year after like after like being pregnant and my daughter being born was like after my most disordered eating um so I was probably a lower weight at that that time and I was in my adult life I was probably the I'm trying to like pick my words carefully here like I was the least not fat <laughs> I have ever been after my daughter was born because I was breastfeeding and around the clock. So my metabolism was just burning the midnight oil. Um, and I walked around. I pushed that stroller all over the city. I was just... I would walk for hours and hours and hours. And so not that calories in, calories out equation is like a real thing. But at that time, um, it was. And and I look back at those pictures now and see, like, compared to other points in my adult life, how, you know, thin I was. I don't even know my word. Like, I'm trying really hard to pick like the right words here, um, to be mindful of my words and like, no, like just remembering feeling like I was humongous and hating my body and thinking that I was so fat 
in that negative connotation and, you know, trying to like doing all of these, like get your mom body back in shape challenges and classes and, And so when I look at those pictures and when I look at those pictures of myself from when I was like a teenager, where I was decidedly not, um, what I would call, I would never look at her and call her fat today. Like it wasn't about the size of my body. Like it was never about that. And so now I feel, so to circle that back, like, like I said, I don't feel like I'm a liberated fat person, but I am more comfortable with calling myself fat now. And that has a lot to do with my daughter because she's seven and she can see me. She has eyes and kids are smart. And even at seven, even if in our house, we don't talk about other people's bodies even if we don't comment on body size, like they get it by osmosis, right? Just living in the world that we live in. And a couple of years ago, I had this realization that like, okay, yeah, I am fat. And it's not a secret because other people can see me. (laughs) Um, And if I don't start... If I don't start talking about being fat in a positive way or not even positive way in a neutral way, like there's going to be one day where like somebody's going to like make a joke about her fat mom. And, and it's like, I have to have to get there first. Right. Like not even to deflect anything, but like, to teach her that like that's not an insult fat is not an insult it's just uh it's just a neutral thing it's just a body we have tall bodies short bodies fat bodies leaner bodies bodies have different abilities and that's what I want her to know to be true and so I really put in a lot of effort to, you know, call myself that, refer to myself that in a neutral way and, and to just not hold it so, so tightly as well to like make a joke, right? Like, oh, you want me to stay while you fall asleep? Well, I can't do that. But look, here's a big fluffy pillow and it's nice and squishy, just like my tummy. So it's just like, cuddling with me you know trying to just just you know just talk about it because it it is neutral even if I'm not there yet um has she noticed this has she asked questions about it as you've been talking about it more I mean she has she said things before like she hasn't had any specific questions. It's more just been like, oh, well, you have a big belly and I don't. And it's never been a real thing. Yeah. Nice. It's not yet. Yeah. I think that's so great. Like what a beautiful way to 
create space for her and her relationship to her own body, no matter whether, no matter where, how her body grows or changes, just this idea that we can be neutral with our bodies is a really powerful one. And for her not to be scared of certain words used for bodies, because kids are horrible (laughs) as they get older about teasing and bullying and yeah. And so you're, yeah, you're just, it just feels so supportive what you're doing with her too. I hope so. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) I've heard a number of parents talk about this, how it's their kids who really shifted their own relationship to their body because they didn't want to just repeat kind of this legacy of body stigma and body hatred and internalized anti-fatness that they got probably often from their moms who got it from their moms who got it from like, it's just, it really passes down through generations. And it's amazing to see a lot of people choosing to do differently. Although I will also say that I was thinking about this recently, you know, my daughter is average. Actually, I would say maybe even on the less than average side. Her father is six feet tall and 140 pounds. So, and he he has been since he was 15 years old, right? Like, doesn't matter. (laughs) It doesn't matter. That's just his body type. And so she does seem to have a lot of his genes. And so I, I do often wonder, though, like, is it easy for me easier for me to have a body neutral or a body positive approach because I have a thin child and would I have a different approach or different thoughts or different challenges if she was the chubby kid or if she was bigger yeah that's so interesting hmm I imagine the answer is yes, there would be some real differences, but I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I don't know if your husband experienced this. My, my husband is six feet tall and very lean. And for him, (laughs) he might kill me for saying this. I apologize, honey, but it illustrates the point beautifully. And I know you're supportive of the podcast. (laughs) For him, he feels like his thinness was always the real challenge like and it's it's interesting the the self uh worth stuff for him that comes from the thinness for me it comes from fatness and we talk about this all the time yeah yeah right so mm-hmm. <laughs> well yeah I mean because when you think about like the I what is the ideal male body in this world that we live in right it's it's not tall and lean and skinny, right? It's like muscular and built. And so he, yeah, he, that we have definitely had a lot of shared experiences around that because being, you know, lo- he, he always, ref- he used to refer to himself as underweight. Yeah. And I yeah. would say, according to what? Right. It's kind of like overweight. That's why I hate that word. According to to what? To what number? Like the average? No. The like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't make any sense. No. 
No. I think this just, I just keep, every time I have these conversations, I just think how complicated and how many layers there are in these conversations and how, also how unique everyone's situation is. Even though there are common themes, there's uniqueness there. And I, yeah, it's, um, it'll be neat. It'll be neat. I, I hope we're, we stay connected over the coming years, which I'm sure we will. And it'll be neat to see like as your daughter grows and changes and as she starts, you know, going to pediatricians and if they make comments in either direction, like there's all these things that has, uh, we have already had that experience from when she was an infant actually, because when she was about six months old, so my dear sweet child was perfectly average, like exact to the dot on every growth chart that you could have. And then she started crawling when she was four months old. Wow. That's er really early, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, that feels very early. Okay. Yeah. So I never had a little potato sack baby that could just like, I could just <laughs> accessorize and like bring to brunch. Like I was the mom who was like, baby. like running through the restaurant. Like oh my four month old was like climbing the bar. Oh my God. Um, and so <laughs> she's just an extremely physical, extremely capable kid and so she was super young she started crawling like four four and a half months old and like they don't eat food until they're six months old and so I literally could not feed her enough breast milk to sustain her caloric intake and so at six months she literally went from perfectly average to off the charts like she was less than zero on the growth chart so it's probably like failure to thrive kind of language and, and exactly and I really in hindsight I really feel like my doctor who is pretty fat phobic herself because you know we had kids around the same age and she would like espouse her keto diet for losing the baby weight and stuff. And I, I think she just like would look at me and be like, this isn't right that this baby is so tiny and like not taking into consideration that like she only has half my genes <laughs> and tall and lanky is her other side. And also like she's a super active baby and, and she had an allergy, which so even when she started to eat food, she had a dairy allergy. So she wasn't able to eat like high fat foods like butter and milk and cheese and stuff like that. So she was just like a super lean, super active little kid. And we had to go through all kinds of tests like at sick kids and, um, poking her and prodding her and thankfully I had a great pediatrician that we ended up being referred to who was was a little bit more level-headed and was like I think you just have a small kid like somebody has to be the smallest kid in the class and like if we put her on a growth chart from 
50 years ago, she would be perfectly average. Interesting. Interesting. Thank goodness for that person. Yeah. Yeah. I was very thankful. Oh my gosh. We just can't escape it. <laughs> no. And then Ever. you have a six month old baby, you know, like that's shameful. Well, and so, uh, so your daughter is seven now. So you've kind of like been exploring at a deeper level, all of, you know, this connection to your own body, the how you want to parent her. Where are you now with all of it? In terms of like, like what? Where you are in the journey. I think you've said like you're not fully fat liberated, but like, where are you? <laughs> you know, I'm on my way. <laughs> I, I mean, I feel like I'm on my way. Um, a lot of therapy later and just trying. So, okay. If I can get like super woo woo here, I am in my birth chart. I actually have no earth signs. I'm mostly air, little drop of water, little drop of fire, but I have no earth signs. And I had an astrology reading one, a couple of years ago with an incredible astrologer. Um, his name is Sarah Fontaine. And she looked at my birth chart and she was like, do you find it troublesome to have a body? And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, yes. And it was like <laughs> being seen for the first time, you know, like I get annoyed with, you know, body stuff. I get annoyed if I get sick and it slows me down. I get annoyed when I have to like get up from the computer to go to the bathroom. I'm annoyed that I have to take a shower and wash my hair, you know, like these things are difficult for me and have been my whole life I would really just love to sit and read and think and write and just it's very 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 easy for me to just be in my head and to forget that I have a body <laughs> my partner says he wishes he he says the exact same thing you guys are very similar because he says he's an artist he says he just wishes he was a floating consciousness oh so I actually, that's something I often discuss with my, uh, I describe myself as an untethered balloon to, when in my therapy, with my therapist. That's <laughs> how I often talk. And so it takes a lot of energy um, and a lot of conscious energy and effort for me to be in my body. And yes, there's, we can talk about like the response, responses to trauma and to stuff, you know, that happened when I was younger that maybe, you know, it wasn't safe to be in my body, but also I just feel like I'm just like not a, like in the way that my daughter is like four months old and crawling, like she, she, her birth chart is mostly earth. Yeah. She's like very on the earth, literally, figuratively, like she's very physical. And I'm just like, not that person to quote Peggy Hill. I live a life of the mind, you know? And so, but what I have really found recently and not to like be grateful for a global pandemic, but the pandemic 
being at home, lockdowns, you know, brought us opportunities um, to explore and, you know, to practice extreme self-care. And I gradually started to learn that the more I can be in my body and be together, I, the better my life is. And so now I have a pretty consistent, you know, I, I exercise a lot, not to exercise, not to like lose weight, but because like, I need to like move that energy around, you know, it needs to come out or go through. Um, and so I, I move my body a lot. I exercise a lot. I do a lot of meditation. I do breath work, which was something that I recently started exploring, which has been like life changing, um, as a way to like really get into your body. And I have found that with that, you know, like that conscious embodiment that my relationship with and to my body has also gotten better and better. And I've had some interesting conversations with my therapist actually, where I have talked about like, you know, when I'm feeling super aligned, when I'm feeling super present, I'm not like, tripped up in anxiety and like thinking about the future and all that kind of stuff. Like I came to her one day and I was like, I, I feel skinny. And when we unpacked it, it was like, no, this was the feeling that I always imagined I was going to have, right? Like being happy in my life, you know, (laughs) being able to look around my, my surroundings and see the abundance that I had with my family and my partner and our beautiful home and the work that I was creating, like all that stuff that I kept thinking, I'll, I'll have that or I'll do that or I'll be that when I'm skinny and I have it all now and I'm definitely not skinny. Yeah. Oh, that's an amazing realization. I love that. And I'm so glad you shared that with people listening because I think there so many of us have held that belief for so long, right? Like I'll get the happiness, the safety, the whatever, the money, the partner when I lose the weight. And it's this like, prize as a and and it's yeah like everyone it's so based on the wrong things and so for you to like have this moment of oh actually I have that feeling like it had nothing to do with the size of my body it had everything to do with like who I am in the world who I've chosen to surround myself with the work that I've chosen to do like all these other like values driven more integrated pieces not just some external marker of body size I'm so happy for you. I love that so much. I also think it's so interesting what you were saying around like <laughs> a, like a barely tethered balloon and you spent a whole lot of time talking about periods and menstruation. <laughs> Connect those dots for me. What got you interested in in looking at menstruation in a deeper way? I hate that word, by the way. Why do I hate that word? I think 
menstruation, probably because it has men in it. Oh, um. that's why. <laughs> periods. Do we just say periods? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Period. Um, no shade so, to men. Um, yes. <laughs> or just a little. A little bit. Yeah. They they can they can have a little. Hashtag not all men. <laughs> so. It actually was something that started when I was a teenager, believe it or not. And I had a, I was in high school in the 90s, and people may or may not be aware of um, the toxic shock situation that happened in the early 90s, the kind of 60-second version of it was that tampon um, ingredients and absorbencies was unregulated and there was kind of this like race between the big companies to create like the most absorbent like super tampon that you could get. And um, in doing this, a lot of women uh, got very sick and many of them died um, from toxic shock syndrome. And now we have labeling, um, we have uh, standards across the board. So it doesn't matter if you buy an organic tampon at the health food store, or you're going to the drugstore brand, you know, a regular size tampon or a super absorbent uh, tampon is standardized. So was it, was T- so toxic shock syndrome, TSS, I rem- I of course I was also a teenager in the nineties. I totally and I actually think I may have had a version of it once. I but I always thought it was because what it says in the like info packet is if you you don't want to have a tampon in for more than eight hours. I thought it was like something negative happens with the blood being like held for that long. But it's that's so, not right, right? I mean, that's not great, right? If anybody has, if you've ever like forgotten about a tampon at the end of your period like and you pull that out you know it's a not a great scene um and so there is some sanitary pieces to it but what happens okay so the lesson about toxic shock so in the vaginal like canal right when you insert a tampon right you it, it's moist in there right it's uh, has a pH balance there's microbiome and if you have a tampon that is more absorbent than you need what can happen is it's not just absorbing the fluid from your period it's also going to start to absorb some of that natural moisture that your body needs to function because you know if you've ever been in a vagina it's kind of like the inside of your cheek right so imagine what would happen if you like stuck a cotton ball in your mouth like event all of that moisture is going to get absorbed and then what happens is if the tampon is in the vagina and now it's kind of absorbed all of this extra moisture, it can start to create like micro tears in the lining of like in your skin and then bacteria and other things. Um, So toxic shock is actually um, caused by a particular strain of bacteria, um, can get into the lining of the uterus through these micro tears. And that's what makes you very sick. I never knew any of that. 
And well, and here, an interesting thing too is that not everybody is susceptible to a toxic shock infection either, that there are, there is actually like a genetic marker that is a precursor to getting toxic shock. So I would highly recommend a book called Toxic Shock Syndrome by a woman uh, named uh, Shara Vostrel um, that talks more about it. But all of this to say, that's toxic shock. So a lot of women got sick, women died, and um, we ended up with this regulation across the board, um, the various, you know, brands uh, for absorbencies because of uh, feminist consumer rights advocates who advocated the with the government to create standard standards for absorbencies and labeling, which is now why we have the little insert that talks about toxic shock, tells you why it's dangerous, um, and also talks about the absorbency. So interesting that it took a feminist lobbyist group essentially being like, hey, and not, of course not. Why am I surprised? Of course not the companies being like, oh, women are dying. Let's investigate. I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, there's like way more to the story that like I'm not an expert in, but there are people who are. And so there, yeah, there's a lot, a lot more to this. And at the time, there was no regulations around ingredients. And in fact, there, there hasn't even been any regulations around labeling on menstrual products until like it like happened after heavy flow started, which was in 2017. Like this is like literally recent memory. Oh, Amanda, this is when I just say I hate everything and everyone. I think I say that every episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean that there's an old piece that an old piece that Gloria Steinem wrote in the 70s called If Men Had Periods. And if you were to read it today, it's like nothing has changed. Oh, um, it still holds up, unfortunately. Yeah, it still holds up in 2023, 40 plus years later. And so all of this was going on. And I am a young, impressionable, punk rock kind of girl in the suburbs and I got my hands on a riot girl zine. I learned about toxic tampons and the zine also included a pattern for making your own cloth pads. And I was like, okay, definitely don't want to be putting bleached tampons in my vagina. So I'm going to make some of these cloth pads. I started making my own little zines about toxic tampons and flyers and putting them up in the bathroom at school and things like that. And then, you know, that was the 90s and that was super weird. The other kids at school did not particularly feel as impassioned about toxic tampons as I did. And so it just kind of like fizzled out. But then this interest and so I mean, that story also illustrates that even when I was young, I was like very interested in, I mean, I was interested in punk culture and I was interested in, um, you know, politics and radical politics. And, um, you know, I used to like, I worshiped no logo and subscribed to ad busters and things like that. So was, um, you know, a tiny little lefty, um, teenager. 
and also just really had this interest in the body. And as I got older, you know, started to get more interested in like alternative health and wellness, which like at the turn of the century, what like that was like, you know, patchouli, <laughs> like granola, brown rice, like it is not the way that it, it was today, but it was always kind of there in the background. And um, when I was like 30-ish years ago, I guess 10 years ago, I was quite miserable and I made this decision that I was going to become a holistic nutritionist. And that decision was multifaceted for many reasons. But when I was in holistic nutrition school, I kind of reconnected with that part of myself. I was making those toxic tampon zines and stuff because that was the first time that the concept of like period pain being common but not normal was presented to me. And it really switched something on in my brain. And I knew that I wanted to kind of specialize in reproductive health and wellness, because that's really where I felt the most interest. And um, I was coming off the birth, I had been on birth hormonal birth control for a very long time, came off of that, um, was thinking, starting to think about getting pregnant. So reading, taking charge of your fertility, learning about fertility awareness, this concept of body literacy was kind of presented to me for the first time. And I just knew that that was what I wanted to do. So I went to holistic nutrition school and ended up being like 35, 36 weeks pregnant when I finished, which was not the original five-year plan. <laughs> and then went on that leave and finished up school, had a baby, had kind of a traumatic birth experience. And now I'm on that leave for one year. And I knew that I wasn't really going, I had kind of had in my, knew in my head that I, I wasn't going to go back to my corporate job. I was going to maybe go out and do some freelancing. And then I was going to like do it and become a holistic nutritionist. But when it came down, like once my daughter was getting close to a year and I started thinking about, okay, it's time to like start thinking about this business and creating this business. And I started to do it, but like, a lot of stuff had changed because like when I was pregnant, I had a midwife here in Ontario. You can choose a midwife or an OB and having a midwife and having like body autonomy and in a medical setting and like being presented with options and was like life altering experience and to be indoctrinated with holistic nutrition and wellness as well. Like, and then to still end up like with this traumatic 
experience that put my life and my child's life in danger. And my daughter ended up in the NICU and, um, you know, I wasn't well for some time after and it was like a snowball of things that happened. And it was like very disarming. And I kind of felt like I had lost my religion in a way because like, that's what it was. Like I practiced wellness, you know, like it wasn't steeped in everything that I did. Every meal. I mean, I spent all my time eating, prepping food, thinking about food, writing about food, looking at pictures of food, being very hungry um, because I had this, disordered eating. I had a disordered relationship with food. But I also like really believed in this like mind, body, the spiritual aspect of it too. But then to look at what happened with my daughter's birth and being like, but but I had all the right crystals. I lit the candle and everything that I didn't want to happen still happened. And this like loss of control, it was really like this, just the illusion was broken. And then you couple that also with the fact that, you know, I mentioned before, like, what did I do on that leave? I walked around for hours and like, I, here I was, in my rapidly gentrifying neighborhood in downtown Toronto, where I had lived for like five years, but would get on the subway and go downtown every morning. And now here I am on maternity leave, walking around in my rapidly gentrifying neighborhood, listening to like how to build a business podcast. And like the number one tip, the number one tip, that they always give you in school when I was in nutrition school and, you know, a lot of business places is like host a free workshop in your neighborhood. And I was like seeing my neighbors and my neighborhood for the first time. And I was like, Oh, I'm just supposed to tell these people to buy organic food. And that's, that's going to fix the problem. And so I became very radicalized, I would say, through my experience with midwifery. And then my, and I should also say shout out to my black midwife, who, you know, supported me through my pregnancy and birth and taught me so much. And then my birth experience, and then here I am, feeling quite lost, right? Like I didn't believe in any of the shit anymore. But then I also like leaned in further to wellness because that was my coping mechanism, you know, where it was like, you know, I'm just restricting and and trying to how can the diet get cleaner you know (laughs) Um, yeah if I just do one more tweak like I'll get there yeah exactly and then my child would go to sleep and I would like be binging in the closet the entire time and and was so lost and so I start 
building this nutrition business. And back in 2016, 2017, when I first started working, like we did not talk about periods in the same way that we did today, right? Like Ellie did not have a diva cup on The Last of Us, you know, like we do now. And so I kind of had this like, as I was building my brand, I kind of had this like soft slant of like women's health, right? But what was happening time and time again is that like people were just coming to me wanting to lose weight and like, okay, yeah, so I see that you specialize in women's health and menstruation and period cramps and stuff like that and like yeah I've got period cramps but like how do I lose this 10 1500 whatever pounds and I just hated that like I did not want to be a weight loss coach I did not want to be a fat nutritionist either which is a whole other piece And I just, like, I just was bad at it, too. Like, people would be like, so, like, I do you think I should, like, cut out coffee? And I would be like, I don't know. What do you think? And, like, what do do you think you should cut out coffee? And, like, that's just, like, not what people are coming to you for. They want them. They want the specific meal plan, which is funny because we'll talk about the we'll talk about how I use those questions in my business now. <laughs> um, and and so I was just bad at it, and I found myself at this period of time where, like, I was freelancing, you know, doing events and working, doing some like PR and marketing stuff um, on the side as well as building this nutrition business. And I kind of had this downtime where I didn't have my projects were all wrapped up. I didn't have any real client prospects. And I had been, you know, trying to do this holistic nutrition thing, trying to really put a stake in the ground around the reproductive health and wellness piece. And also what I forgot to mention, the backdrop of this is the U.S. election, the Women's March in early 2017, which was like another pivotal, like just like added another kind of layer of my radicalization. And I had always wanted, I had like, I started listening to podcasts like in like 2003 back when there was like four of them <laughs> and um I'd always wanted to do a podcast the whole blog I was trying to blog it wasn't working and I was part of this like little mastermind group and I had literally no updates and it was my turn to talk and I was like so I think I'm gonna do a podcast and those women reacted with such genuine excitement and enthusiasm and support for me 
And they were like, yeah, what's it going to be about? Like, okay. Like my friend Deborah pulls out a notebook and was like, okay, 10 topics for episodes. What are they? <laughs> like, go. And it was like one of those things where it was so clear and so easy when the lightning struck, like, and it just started to come together. And then I contacted, you know, my sister is a graphic designer. And I was like, hey, I'm thinking I'm going to do a podcast. Here's what I'm thinking. What should it be called? And I was going to call it like the period podcast because I'm not that good with naming stuff. And she, it was my sister actually who suggested Heavy Flow. And that comes from Mean Girls. I have a heavy flow and a wide set vagina. Yes. I forgot that line. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of like where it came from because we were trying to think about like period stuff. And then I started reaching out to like potential guests and people were like, yeah, I, I they started getting back to me. So I was like, shit, I guess this is happening and I'm making a podcast. And, you know, I really feel like, I was in this kind of like perfect place because the podcast launched in September of 2017 and which feels so long ago now. (laughs) It does, but it's not that far. (laughs) But what happened a month later was that was me too. When me too started. And the entire conversation around women's bodies and what is okay and not okay and what we tolerate and what we will no longer tolerate. There was just a a huge sea change in that discourse. I mean, now we could do a whole other podcast series on whether me too made a difference, but you know, at the time it was, revolutionary and it was you know I just caught that moment of here I am I'm going to talk about periods we're going to talk about bodies we're going to talk about all the stuff that comes with it too like Diane Bondi was one of my actually one of my first podcasting I met her and was so touched and changed by her message and her energy so I was like hey I'm uh, making a podcast just basically so I could talk to her yeah in real life after like the (laughs) session and it just kind of started from there and then the book also came about pretty quickly um so the podcast launched in September and like Thanksgiving, Canadian Thanksgiving. So October was when I first got approached by my publisher, Dundurn. And that was also just like a perfect time because the my editor, acquisitions editor, had a daughter who's like 11. And she was like, fuck, my kid's going to get her period soon. And I don't know what I'm going to tell her. And then she just happened to see like a friend of a friend shared the podcast trailer and being an acquisitions editor, she's like, well, maybe this could be a book. And then the rest is history. 
Yeah. Amazing. That's so neat to see all, all the contributing steps and threads that led to that moment, that decision from like, what are the 10 topics to like, can you write the book? And just, that's amazing. Did you feel swept up in it all? Like, how were, how were you during this time? The book I did feel a little bit swept up in because I was very like, whoa, 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 I'm not ready for this. Like, this was on the five-year plan again with this. Five, I don't know what, I don't make five-year plans anymore, by the way. You know, I thought like after I did 500 episodes and had a huge audience, then maybe I could start putting together a book. And I, I wasn't sure that I was ready, but it was like, that was the dream. That was my life's dream come true sitting right in front of me. And and I thought, sure, like, yeah, I'm going to do it. Wow. And then you have now created a different business, which it's so interesting having, because I've not heard like your whole story before, right? So just seeing all these threads of this like questioning, tenacious, like curious person and I can see how it's all kind of weaving together now that I'm getting like the full tapestry of your story and how that has led to what you're doing now, which is Slow and Steady Studios, which is so rooted in beliefs that are quite counterculture. You're a change maker, like you're doing business differently, which seems to be a real theme for you, right? Like I'm going to question, I'm going to do it according to a different set of values. I'm not just going to believe what has been spoon fed to me. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that also goes back to heavy flow because heavy flow was a podcast. Like it was the podcast, but eventually we started having sponsors after the book came out, I was speaking. And so I really kind of, so I created heavy flow, like the business. I have a credit card that literally says heavy flow on it, which always tickles me when it would say name on card to to use that credit card. And so it kind of became a business on its own. And so I really looked at heavy flow as, you know, creating like a media company. And I looked at it as an opportunity, yeah, to do it my way. Like here I have this tiny micro business. I'd been kind of like freelancing and doing some of this like marketing communication stuff on the side. It wasn't like, I didn't have any structure around that business. You know, somebody needed a person who could write or read. And so I would, you know, a friend of a friend would refer me and I was doing these kind of projects. But I was very interested in creating a business. And so I took Heavy Flow very seriously. And I looked at it as an opportunity to really take those feminist values that we were talking about on the podcast. And like, if you listen to like the catalog, the, the show just gets more and more radical as we go on, because it was like peeling back an onion, right? Where it was like, first, we're talking about like, you know, well, why don't we know anything about our periods? Right. Well, the the short answer is because we live in like a capitalist, white supremacist, patriarchal 
ableist like society right and like nobody gave a shit about women didn't even bother to like look under the hood and try and figure out like what is a period basically just thought it was a a defect right and as I was going week after week after week with all of these guests, like looking at menstruation with a different lens every week, it was all leading back to the same shit, the same systems, the same oppressive structures that we're living in. And I really took it seriously to take those values that we were talking about on the business and uh, on the show and apply them to the business. And so that meant like, hiring a producer that I was going to pay like real money to produce instead of like shipping the files off to the Philippines and having my podcast edited for $5. Yeah. And I'm not just going to take money from anybody and partnering with businesses that whose values aligned. And I went to like being in the period world, I discovered, well, it's called Luna Pads at the time. Now it's called Isle. And like, that is the epitome of a feminist business. Like they are so values driven, so, so firm on their position as like a feminist, sustainable, um, business and I took a lot of inspiration from Madeline and Suzanne in building Heavy Flow Inc the business and you know so what kind of sponsors are we going to going are we going to work with um and then I also recognized that I had an opportunity like now I had this platform and so I wasn't I was like, well, why do I need to just take, you know, $2,500 from a big company like Lunapads or Isle? Um, You know, there's other small businesses out there whose values are aligned with me and my show who, like my listeners, are your ideal client or your target audience and as I was put myself in my listeners shoes and it was like you know I want and I want to know who those businesses are because it's hard to find them it's hard to know you it really is so much word of mouth exactly yeah and so you know one of the things that I'm most proud of with heavy flow was the last season in the summer of 2019 when we went on summer hiatus instead of replaying the ads for my big corporate sponsors right um like their their benefits were they got their benefits so what I did was I created like a smaller ad program where I was like hey you want to buy an ad on heavy flow sure 50 bucks or 75 bucks or however it was and I was like and if I can sell out all these ads, if you can't afford an ad, or if you are black or indigenous, or you're a woman of color, and you need exposure, then you can have an ad for free. Because I have this platform, 
And uh, that's the world. Like, how are we going to get to this new world? We're talking and complaining (laughs) every week, (laughs) you know, pointing our fingers. And like, it really felt like, like I got to a point where with heavy flow, I was just talking, you know, in 20, wow, I'm going to cry. In 2017, just talking about periods was revolutionary. And like making a podcast about periods. And like, when I look at like, you know, we're recording in February of 2023 now. So like the big news was last week, HBO, Sunday night show, like there's a diva cup, like front and center. Like that's a huge thing. And like heavy flow contributed to that. Heavy flow contributed to the period scene in turning red, you know, like maybe not directly, but we were a part of that change. But it got to a point where I was so burnt out. And this is even before 2020 hit. And I really just started to feel like I'm just talking. I'm just talking. And at some point, I can't just make a podcast talking about how capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy, all of these E's and isms and whatever, like I need to go out into the world and I need to fucking put my money where my mouth is and do it. There is another side was around this time too, like in, in 2018, I had this realization that like, you know, maybe I should get a job again instead of just freelancing. There had been this, I don't know, something had happened where like Pepsi, I think Pepsi had this like outrageous like Kylie Jenner ad where she like, like cracks a pop with like a police officer or something. Oh, yes. In front of like a a riot. Yeah, yeah, it was like a riot or a protest or something. Yeah, it was very, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, how is this shit still getting approved? How is this still happening in 2018? I mean, it still happens now in 2023. But I had this realization that like maybe I could have more of an impact instead of, you know, being in my little corner of my home office writing a press release alone. Like maybe I should get a job instead because like somebody needs to be in that boardroom table to be like, guys, maybe not, (laughs) you know, maybe this isn't what we should be doing. And while I did not go to work for Pepsi, I did end up working, spending, and then it kind of dovetailed into the pandemic. But I ended up spending the next three and a half years working in organizations that supported women entrepreneurs. And originally, this business, Slow and Steady, was uh, I was going to go all in in the spring of 2020. 2020 was going to be my year. Um, and I was going to create this business. And I'm really glad that actually that didn't happen (laughs) because I don't think personally I don't think I was ready for it and having that time working and understanding women entrepreneurs and understanding the 
lack of support and the challenges and the opportunities for women entrepreneurs has only made me so much better uh, and better prepared for launching Slow and Steady. And one of the funny things, though, that I learned, and I was acting director of communications and marketing at this organization supporting women entrepreneurs. And, you know, what we were kind of seeing in the research is that majority of women entrepreneurs are like solo businesses, service-based businesses, the graphics designer, the accountant, the, you know, the service-based entrepreneur who is basically an entrepreneur because the realities of being like a woman in the world. And is that like, you just don't fit in the workplace. Like the workplace was not designed for you. And more and more research was showing that women were starting these businesses to work around their child care opportunities or their their caregiving. Maybe it's not their ch- children. Maybe it's their parents. Maybe it's both. Um, or maybe they have endometriosis or chronic illness and, and, and. And what I was also starting to see was that if you look at some of the programs or you look at some of the or other organizations that are supporting women entrepreneurs, that support is not available to that woman entrepreneur, right? We're looking for like those, like what the women entrepreneur like like a lot of the money that is out there funding women entrepreneurs, they're like looking for the woman who's going to found some like interesting piece of technology or they're patented some type of medical technology to like do something better. They're building these like billion dollar companies, right? Or like who's out there, who's like the female Zuckerberg, right? Is the, um, kind of energy that they're giving, right? But I look around at the women entrepreneurs that I know and like, that's not what we're doing. And every time we give a woman, and I'm using that term broadly, right? I mean, uh, inclusively, we give a woman an opportunity to like do what she wants and to thrive, like, that's our hope in hell of survival as a species on this planet that is dying, you know? Like, I don't care about a woman entrepreneur who is replicating the structures and the systems and, you know, who, who is doing that. Like, I just don't care about that at all. I care about what I've started to call the woman doing her own thing. Like that is my, that is my ideal client because she is revolutionary. And I am so obsessed with every woman doing their own thing. Like I just want them to succeed because if you are successful, then I'm going to be successful. Then I feel a little bit more hopeful. I know that the world is going to like, we're going to be okay. 
we're going to make it. We're going to pull through if we can activate and support more women who are doing their own thing because in the same way that like when I looked at when I was building heavy flow on the business side, right? I'm going to pay people a not just a minimum, not just a living wage. I'm going to pay them a thriving wage, right? I'm going to think about sustainability. I'm going to think about flexibility. Like my dream would be to have, you know, a team that works, that I work with. I'm like, I don't care when you come to work. Like I'm going to give you flexibility. And, 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 we're never going to get there. We're never going to get to the world that we want if we're just replicating structures. It's so true. Yeah. Well, and your so slow and steady. So what is it? What 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 is it? <laughs> what are you what doing? What is it? <laughs> <laughs> so slow and steady is my little baby business, and so it's a bit of a hybrid between mentorship, strategy, and what I call co-creation. And so I'm looking to work with, you know, that woman, probably a solopreneur running her own service-based business um, who needs some support, right? Marketing is kind of what it says on the tin. Um, that's kind of my way in because that's my like, you know, 16 years of expertise and my schooling and my background. But what I have learned, um, having worked with, you know, over a dozen women now, um, is that marketing is like the symptom, right? Like when we're kind of like spinning, when we're kind of spinning our wheels, like around our marketing, there's something there. There's like a there there, you know? You, and oftentimes it can be like, you know, you are struggling with being seen because all women are not supposed to be seen, right? You're struggling talking about money because you were taught that good girls don't talk about money, right? Or, you know, you live in a world that doesn't take your entire business seriously and now you have no support right, for it. And so there's like, I use this line, which is that if marketing feels hard because it is hard, like which is I find is like this, at the center of all my work that I do, like, yeah, it's hard. I went to college for it and I still think it's hard <laughs> you know like we start a business we can read we can write so we think we can market our business and that's just absolutely not true and then I find oftentimes that something is happening and it kind of is manifesting as like a marketing challenge right but usually what's underneath it is that you're feeling compelled or pressured to do something that you don't want to do. <laughs> and so I have found that my magic is to kind of illuminate what you already know, shine a light on these things, kind of like look under the rocks, see what's what's lurking there. What are the what are these things that are blocking us? And then once we can get super clear 
then brainstorming is so easy and so fun. And I'm right there with you to, to kind of get through it. And like some of my sessions are like literally sharing your screen. Let's, let's draft copy together. Or sometimes it's like lots of tears and hand holding and just holding space because this is very hard. Marketing is hard. Well, and so slow and steady, the name is that I imagine that's really to reflect the values that you're bringing. This is not how to get rich quick. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, I know that you have been or will be talking to Kelly Deals and she talks a lot about the female lifestyle empowerment brand, right? And this idea that a lot of women entrepreneurs are like selling a secret formula that's going to like make you rich or skinny or hot or smart or whatever it is. And that is not my vibe at all. <laughs> not at all. And I really believe in like slow. I, I believe in going slow to stay steady. And so what that means to me is we go slow to take our time so that we stay steady as in we don't get stuck in that whirling dervish. We don't get into those patterns and cycles of overwhelm. Um, and we're just, you know, we're just staying steady, doing the thing and showing up and doing the next step again and again and again. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting because I, I, I am interviewing Kelly Deal. So she'll, her episode will air right before yours. So she'll be like the theory. And then I was saying to you, like talking about your business will be like, and here's how one person applied it. Um, and I took classes from Kelly and totally opened my eyes to a different way of doing business. Cause I come from such, I come from startup culture and I come from big corporate culture. Every unlearning urgency, I'm still, and it's been uh, since 2019, I've been on my own doing my own business and it's still like in me. Like I'll get an email and I'll be like, oh my God, like I must reply. I must fix the problem that just was sent to me. And it's like, it's Sunday at 4 p.m. Like, why am I now completely preoccupied? And so I just... I'm so grateful to Kelly. I'm so grateful to then and then choosing to work with you was very deliberate on my part. So I was like, I need someone to help hold me in these principles as I develop whatever's next for my coaching practice, for my business, for my podcast. Like, because God, those patterns run so deep. And so having other people who have those similar values is just because I don't want to be like I was when I was in startup culture. I don't want to be like I was in corporate. That was not a good look for me. Like, I know. Well, and slow and steady is as much a reminder for myself because I do find that I like, you know, I'm the same way. Like, oh, why isn't, you know, why haven't a thousand people already signed up for my workshop? You know, I, I get myself into these like, uh, you know, sometimes I, I feel like I have to hire myself, right? Because I I do it too, right? Like, yeah, reminder, I'm not looking to 10x my income this month, right? Because, you know, here's like the reality is that I'm the primary parent for my daughter. Like my husband's 
job. Like we're married and we live together, but he has a very inflexible job. So when she's sick, when there's a PA day, when there's a doctor's appointment that can't be made outside of school hours or work hours, like that is my job. And, and I can't have a full-time job. I don't, I, I don't want it. <laughs> and, and I can't, like I worked full-time plus over the last several years and it diminished my mental health so severely that I was so burnt out. I was so full of anxiety. I had nothing left for myself and that's not how I want to live my life. I don't want to be working 40 hours a week. I don't even necessarily want to be working 20, but, um, you know, I am like looking to work as, as what's the word I'm looking to work as less, as little as possible, as little as As possible. yeah. 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 I'm trying to work as little as possible. Right. Not because I'm lazy, not because I'm trying to like scheme, right? But because I have other responsibilities at this season in my life. And also I want to like have a life. Like I was gonna say, and also fuck capitalism, like as much as I can, as often as I can. <laughs> exactly. And like, I really feel like I, so I just turned 40 last year and I feel like if you're around 40, there's like a particular, I have noticed this not like with so many other women of, of my age where we were just working and working and working, right? Where we were told that we could be anything, right? You can be anything, you can be successful, you can be the CEO. And so we all, you can have it all, right? And we all believed it right? And, and we did, right? We did all have it all. And then we got there and we we're like, what the fuck? Like, I don't even want this. You know, like, I remember in, in our session, you said something to me that I still think about, which was, because I'm, I'm 42. So similar, similar age bracket. And you said something like, you know, our kind of age group grew up I guess it's the L kind of the elder millennial where every everything I do needs to be commodified in some way. And when you said that, I was like, holy shit. I literally, the notes app in my iPhone is filled with ways I can commodify everything I do. And then I'd never questioned it though, Amanda. Like I had just assumed, well, that's what I have to do to survive and thrive. And like, until I took classes from Kelly, until I worked at the writing studio that I built, that I'm a coach for, which is a beautiful, it's called Firefly Creative Writing. You've heard me mention it before. It is deeply rooted in a sustainable practice. I mean, we just took a month off, or a month off, no, a week off last, last week. The whole studio shuts down because February is hard and there's no other justification. And, and the, the founder, Chris, who's incredible is like, and, here's a hundred bucks for all 10 staff because February is hard. Do something for yourself. I, I don't know Chris personally, <laughs> but I have long followed Firefly and they are actually on my like business heroes, vision inspiration board because 
that to me is such a a living example of living your values. And it's slow and steady. The first nine years of the business were just Chris. And the next, and now it's 18. This, I think March 1st, I think is the anniversary. And so the last eight, nine years grew to, there's 10 of us now. And like, these values are so held and I've never experienced that before. I've never, most of us work in organizations that it's all about profits first, maybe people second. I don't know. A lot of the leadership coaching I do is in corporate organizations, tech startups. I have government contracts and every single person I'm talking to, I probably have 30 clients and what they are, the commonality I'll say to them, a classic first session question is, okay, on a scale of one to 10, how burnt out are you? And they're like, oh, 27. Like every it's, we're being exploited. We're exhausting. We're killing our bodies. We're killing our mental health. And so that's why I so wanted to spotlight you with Slow and Steady. And like, I'm so excited to talk to Kelly and have these two episodes back to back to kind of just start to seed that there are other ways. Because until I met Firefly and met Kelly, I had no idea there was such a thing as a different way that can work. No, I'm all about like, you know, my experience was just built so differently. Yeah, I I should say that I, you know, I have learned so much from Kelly. Back in the day, I worked with Kelly as a coach one-on-one as well. And so she's incredible and has, yeah, such amazing ideas, especially around like naming that lifestyle, that female lifestyle empowerment brand. Like that was something that I struggled with time and time and time again. Like when I was trying to set up my business as a nutritionist, like it didn't feel right. All the stuff that I was looking at to try and position and all this, the, the, these frameworks for positioning your business and creating messaging and things like that. Like it all felt so gross and I couldn't put my finger on it. And then when I came across Kelly and she was able to name it so clearly, I was like, yes, that's it. And like, that's not what I want. (laughs) That is not what I want at all. Yeah. I encountered her when I was building my coaching practice and I was like, oh, this is why I'm struggling because I didn't watch the, I didn't want the, look at me, I did it and I can show you how, like, and then the, the very like, you know, the thin white blonde coach on like the steps of a jet, you know, (laughs) just or the, or lying on a yacht. I'm like, oh my God, this, but I don't, but what else is there? I didn't know what else there was. Yeah. I mean, there is another way. I mean, I don't know. I feel like I show up to work every day and like, I'm in it too. Right. Like I don't have the secret formula. Like I have an idea. I have an into uh, an intuition about what the direction that I want to go in um, and how I want to build my business. But like, there's no blueprint for this, right? Because, you know, there's how I'm going to build phone SETI is not the same as how you're going to build your coaching practice or this podcast. And like, there's, it doesn't make sense to, there's no one size fits all, right? 
And that's very counter to what a commodification and capitalism would want us to know. It would be like, buy my template and I'll show you how to grow your business. And what you're saying is radically different. It's like, no, hang on. Actually, let's slow it down. Let's investigate. Let's look. Let's see what's going on. Well, and that's also, there's a lot of feminine energy in that too. And I also should give a credit to Jennifer Armbrust from Sister, who wrote an essay called The Feminine Economy and talks about the economic, like the principles of a feminine economy, right? Like there's something very masculine about that cookie cutter by my template, right? Like what is that? That's like a... Oh, like line production. Like a line production, exactly, an assembly line, right? Whereas, you know, I can't scale up holding space for my client to feel things and work through the blocks and and get in touch with that soft spot, right? Like, I, I can't, and I wouldn't want to. Because it's so wonderful. <laughs> it's so wonderful to be there with them. Right. And one of the things I loved that Kelly says, because really quickly people go, well, that can be profitable then. And she talks about money and justice and how you can do both. And again, I'm so, I feel so lucky to have been exposed to Firefly because I, because it is a profitable business and it gives a lot back to the community and we all volunteer and we do learnings. And like, there's just this whole e new ecosystem that gets created and Kelly's whole, she has, a, I'm going to butcher the saying, but basically like if the, the person running the business is not thriving, then it's not a feminist business. And that was revolutionary to me too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think that it all comes down to, and like going right back to where we started this conversation, right? Of like, well, which is like, what is enough, right? Like we just live in this world where it's more, 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 more. Level up, the next level, hoarding, 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 amassing more. And like what I really think, and that's what the... um it is radical to say, like, I have enough, right? Like, what is enough to support my family, to support myself? And it and enough doesn't have to be like, okay, bills are paid and that's it, right? Like, yeah, enough for going to get a massage, enough for taking a vacation, enough for taking time off, right? And like, that's my goal is I want enough. It's so beautiful, Amanda. I'm so glad that I got to work with you. I'm so glad I get to share you with whoever's listening, all the people listening. Definitely, if you're interested in working with Amanda, I'm going to share all your, all your information will be available. If you're inspired, I, you know, reach out to Amanda. I can vouch for the brilliance, like, I'll share because I just think it's it's useful to hear examples. But when we were working together, we were kind of at this crossroads of, okay, am I building Fat Joy Inc.? Am I building a business or like, or what am I doing? <laughs> right? Like, do I just keep doing this? Am I wanting to like, what am I doing? Growth or a business? 
And it was so interesting because part of the session that was so powerful was actually you asking those questions around what is enough, basically. And like the question around why, like what's behind the wanting to grow the business? What's behind just growing the podcast? And it was so much based in shoulds and still connected to this idea of capitalism. Well, I have this thing, so I should offer group workshops. I should create an online class. I should do all this stuff. But then when we actually got down to it and you held me in that space and you remember I was very uncomfortable. I didn't want to say the words. How long did it take? 10 minutes for me to say, okay, the truth is I actually don't want fat joy. Oh, I feel like it was longer than that. (laughs) It was probably longer than that. (laughs) Cause I couldn't even say the words. I couldn't even admit that actually I don't want this thing that capitalism would tell me I should do. And I was like, but that's not what's actually going to serve my whole life right now. What's actually going to serve my whole life and what is at the heart of heart for me with this work is sharing stories of fat people doing amazing shit in the world. And anything that takes me away from that starts to feel icky, but it took, yeah, you're right. It probably took like an hour to like get <laughs> to process that. And you held that. And that's been so great because now I have clarity and now I know exactly what I need to do. And it's just, it's, there's an ease now to it. So I just, I, yeah. So I'm just so grateful for you, though, not only the work that you did for me, but that you're bringing this forward to others as well and sharing this, sharing this way of being in the world that is, I love how you keep using the word radicalized, that is radically different (laughs) from what we're kind of quote unquote supposed to do. So um, before we close, I want to talk to you about joy. So tell me about joy. What brings you joy? How do you turn towards joy? I'm a podcast person, as I have said before. And so I listen to a lot of podcasts to the point where maybe it's to my detriment. So two things on that line that have been bringing me joy is actually listening to music. And I don't just mean the like deep focus podcasts or playlists that I listen to when I'm trying to get work done. But like I created a playlist called Hype Woman on Spotify. It's all the best songs that makes you want to just like get up and dance when I need to like get my energy moved around but also so that brings me a lot of joy I also get a lot of joy listening to like tv insider podcasts so I think in a different life I if I could go back to my 20 year old self, it would have been go to film school. Um, I would have told myself that and work in television. And I love listening to like, I'm really into the last of us right now. And listening to the last of us official podcast gives me so much joy. And whenever I can get down on my daughter's level and see the world from that seven year old. It's that is the hardest part. That is very hard to do as a parent. But when I can get there and connect with her, uh, she brings me a lot of joy too. Oh, thank you for this conversation, Amanda. I've really, really enjoyed 
being on the other side, you were, you know, like interviewing you, whereas you were interviewing me kind of last time. So I just am so filled with gratitude. Thank you. Thanks. My pleasure. Me too. Before we go, I'd like to read a poem because poetry can reach our hearts in a different way. Poems can have us feel in a different way. And that's what this podcast is all about. Expanding our hearts, deepening our empathy, and inviting in joy. So each week, you get a new poem. Amanda Layard's new business is called Slow and Steady, which is an intentional nod to the alternative ways that we can grow our businesses. And when we do that differently, suddenly we're living differently, a little less urgency, a little less, you know, being at the back and call of consumerism and capitalism and white supremacy and all these other things, which is why I find Amanda so inspiring. And so for the poem today, I've chosen one of my favorite poems to share because it kind of, whenever I read it, it brings me back to that feeling of living from a deeper, more grounded level. It is called Birdhouse and it's by Tony Hoagland. Do you have a 20 foot extension ladder? Good. Let's get it out of the garage. I want to put this birdhouse up on one of the evergreens that stands off your back deck. I'm going to use long 10 penny nails to fasten it to the tree and some kind of wire strapping too. I want it to stay there for a long time. I want you to notice it season after season, how the mother bird keeps flying in and out of the little knot hole that I drilled to where the baby birds stretch their mouths wide open in a ferocious pink bouquet. If I am no longer here for some reason, I think you will see me occasionally reflected in the incessant activity of the birds flying in and out of the birdhouse, always coming and going just like I did, not wishing to become too well-known or ever staying long in one place. And yet the birdhouse will say something different about me. It will say that I lived here. It will be a thing that I made with my hands on a specific afternoon, working for hours, in my garage, with paint streaks and sawdust on my clothes, and that I took the trouble to hang that little domicile high on the trunk of your particular tree, with a knowledge of how life always moves on and yet leaves something behind as well, with something alive inside it. You might say that memory itself is a piece of real estate, a residence with a private entrance and a mystery inside, like this small chateau, painted blue with orange spots on it, hung 20 feet high, a thing for a while, out of reach of the predator time. Thank you for joining me today. My hope is that you're feeling a little less alone and a little more seen. So until the next episode, you can find me on Instagram at fatjoy.life, on YouTube at youtube.com slash at fatjoy, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash fatjoy. Please do check out the show notes for how you can connect with my amazing guest and for the links to the poem. All right, lovely. I am sending you off with my best wishes for an abundantly fat joy day. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. 
Bye-bye. 